2: Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton.
3: Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you with me. My, oh, my. We have a lot to get into today we'll discuss all the latest on the FBI FISA abuse, the Mueller probe, the memos, the dueling memos, all that stuff. We'll get into quite a bit of that. We'll also talk about how looks like the government's funded. There will be no the final shutdown. Da-na-na-na. That was off. I was I was a little I was sharp and flat at the same time. <laughs> that was just not good. Uh but the final shutdown will not happen. Most most of you have heard right the final countdown from when you're at sports stadiums. They always play that at the end. So we will uh, talk about what that means. We'll talk about Nancy Pelosi's marathon DACA grandstanding. <laughs> Seven hours, and uh, we'll get into that. Uh, but and then finally, I'll tell you about a an unexpected showdown between a women's march participant. And a kind and selfless Trump voter that she bumped into on the side of the road—it's going to be quite a story. We'll get to that later on in the show.
0: Good heavens! I think he's a Trump voter.
3: Yes, indeed. Uh, so we will get into all of that. I, I need to start though with this uh, latest of latest info, info deep dive on the uh, FBI probe, the Mueller situation, all this stuff, right? I. I still, there, there's so many different facets to it that it's hard to find a single way to describe all of it. But here's what we know. Here's what matters. Here's why you're listening to the show so we can get into this. First of all, this guy, Struck, uh, spelled Sturzak, but we say Struck. He um was even worse than we thought. More text messages have been released. We now know more about who this guy was and uh, what he thought about Trump, and now here's what uh, here's what we know. The Senate investigators have released this. It turns out that Struck is a oh, who's going to be shocked here? A social justice warrior. That he has self righteous and deeply ignorant views on politics. Um, that he is. Full of disdain for republicans even referred to uh those in in, in loudon county as hillbillies i believe which is interesting because i think loudon county is one of the five wealthiest uh, per capita counties in the entire united states so yeah a lot of a lot of banjos played with the toes in loudon county there struck um so we we've seen more of who this guy is and remember he helped. This is not just we're not just picking on some random FBI agent, as you know. He helped craft the language for the Comey exoneration of Hillary Clinton's email crimes, because that's what they were. Uh, he has been involved at keynotes of the Hillary email investigation and the Russia probe. He was, I think, deputy chief of counterintelligence, at the FBI. So he's a. He's a senior guy. He's not just someone that we're we're not we're not finding the guy in charge of you know, refilling the, the printer ink cartridges and saying, oh, look at his political opinions. Right. This is a guy whose. Ideas and biases matter. So we find out more about him. We find out that he says there are a lot of dumb white men in the FBI. We, we you know, he says a lot of nasty stuff. Um, He said that he would rather his son. Remember, this is somebody that we are we are told to trust in his professionalism, folks, that he would never try to stack the deck in favor of Hillary. And he would never try to deep six Trump's chances. Right. Just trust in his professionalism. Oh, he's very professional. But Peter Strzok joked in these text messages released by Senate investigators today. That he would rather his son be homeless than support Ted Cruz. He joked that the government should maybe shut down a pro-life march. That's really funny for a federal agent to joke about, by the way. So, So he's snide, he's a partisan, and he's an idiot, by the way. Left quite a trail here. Using government devices to write this stuff? Folks i i've been there right i i had an nypd intelligence division issued uh phone smartphone and i assure you i was not writing to my colleagues saying crazy political stuff or how i wanted to stack an investigation one way or another because i mean yeah putting aside just this guy's obvious bias and lack of ethics what an idiot this was the Can we just talk about this for a second, everybody? This is the number two guy in FBI counterintelligence. This is who gets that job. You want to talk about undermining institutions. I'm sorry, but he doesn't think that any of this information could be subpoenaed. He never stopped to think that maybe I shouldn't be saying all this stuff. Remember, this is not like we went through his private. I'd feel differently about this. This isn't like we are releasing transcripts of private phone calls on his own time, on his own dime with his mistress. No, no, no. This is what he was writing on his government-issued devices. He is a senior counterintelligence FBI investigator. This is like, you know, a rocket scientist who can't get the DVD player to work. I mean, come on. Yet here we are. Now you're saying, Buck, well, okay, you're telling me more about this, we know this guy's a dirtbag and all that, but let's, you know, why do we really care? Oh, well, we really care because some of the other stuff that was in these tax messages. Most notably, that the President of the United States, President of the United States, wanted to be briefed on everything they were dealing with, and that that was a couple months before the election. POTUS, President of the United States, President Obama at the time, why would Obama want to know everything the FBI is doing? And the assumption here is surrounding the Clinton email probe. Well, I think that's a, that's a fair question, isn't it? He wanted updates. Obama wanted updates from the FBI. Now, this is weird and a red flag for a number of reasons. But let me put out there that it is also weird because Obama very explicitly claimed that he would never get involved in anything having to do with an fbi investigation can you
2: guarantee to the american people can you direct the justice department to say hillary clinton will be treated as the evidence goes she will not be in any way protected
0: i can guarantee that and and i can guarantee that not because i uh... attorney general lynch a directive that is institutionally how we have always operated. I do not talk to the attorney general about pending investigations. I do not talk to FBI directors about uh, pending investigations. the uh, We have a strict line uh, and always have maintained it. Previous so, presidents,
4: ju- just to button this up, you, I guarantee
0: it. You, I guarantee that there is no political influence in any investigation conducted by the Justice Department or the FBI not just in this case but in any case and she will be full tre- stop period
2: and she will be treated no different guaranteed
0: li- full-stop nobody gets treated differently when it comes to the Justice Department because nobody is above with the law. That,
2: Even if she ends
0: up as the Democratic nominee. How many time do I have to say Chris? Guaranteed.
3: Guaranteed. Now but see I've got a little problem here. Why? Why oh why is an FBI agent texting his mistress that Obama wants a full update on this. And it's the same guy who added the extremely careless language into the Comey exoneration letter for Hillary Clinton. I just want to know how that's possible. I need someone to explain that to me, how you could have... The president of the United States, who says, "I guarantee it. I guarantee it." Chris, how many? Times? I guarantee it. How many times do we have to go through this? But yet, here we have to look at what we've seen based on these FBI texts, and the president wants an update on everything we're doing, having uh, having to do the Hillary email investigation. That would be, hmm. It's almost like maybe Obama was lying in that interview, and given that. The attorney general at the time basically de facto had to recuse herself from the investigation to Hillary Clinton's emails because of her misconduct, everyone, not just because she didn't recuse herself in advance of it. Loretta Lynch had to step back. She never formally recused herself, but she had to step back or Comey had to step in for her. Oh, isn't that Comey just just showing up right in the nick of time? That had to happen because of Loretta Lynch's misconduct, Barack Obama's attorney general's misconduct by by meeting with Bill Clinton right when Hillary Clinton is not just under investigation, but a decision is going to be announced to the American public. And now we find out that some FBI, not just some FBI agent, an FBI agent who was intimately involved in the Hillary email investigation and the Russia probe is that is saying that the the president wants updates on this. What, what what are we to make of that, folks? You know, we're gonna start putting uh, we're start pressuring Trump to answer questions under oath, which he should not do by the way, but if we I'd like to bring in uh former President Barack Obama, ask him some questions while we're at it. President Obama, did you did you actually ever get briefed on the cause then we're also gonna bring in some FBI folks, because they you know, we know how this game is played. Let's see how they like it. Did you ever let President Obama know? Did you ever have a discussion with President Obama, Peter Strzok, James Comey, go down the list, McCabe, Sally Yates at DOJ. You ever talk to Obama about Hillary's email investigation? If we were to check the uh, visitor's log, would you be able to account for all the different conversations in front of uh, a Senate Senate committee or House committee investigating this matter? Would, would you really be able to do that? I- I'm going to guess the answer's probably no. I'm going to go out on a limb here and, and suggest that maybe what we're starting to figure out, or we're starting to be able to prove, is that the fix wasn't in from the DOJ, folks? The fix was in from President Obama. Well, wouldn't that make a lot more sense now that we remember? Obama was going on TV saying that Hillary didn't do anything wrong while the investigation was going on. We want to talk about people saying, oh, obstruction of justice with Trump, right? They forget that Obama's like, yeah, you know, what she did is overblown. No big deal. No harm, no foul. Obama's the president. This, the actual sitting president of the United States is saying the Democrat contender for the presidency, who did violate classified protocols over 100 times on her, on her server, destroyed evidence, lied about it. I mean, it was a disaster. But with all of that, with all of that, we never hear about Obama's obstruction of justice. I think we deserve some answers, folks. I think we should all be allowed to know we have a right to know what was obama's hand in all of this hillary's emails maybe even the russia probe how often was he briefed on the russia probe what did he know about the russia you know of, I, look i understand the game right he'll exert executive privilege and the. but let's start asking some questions here because now what we've what we've seen with what's been released today is that we've been talking about this scandal we've been talking about this Massive anti-Trump conspiracy and the deep state and the anti-Trumpers as though the the pinnacle of the conspiracy, the top of the conspiracy is at the Department of Justice. But I'm pretty sure the Department of Justice is under the purview of the executive branch, which means that the very, very top is the president. And the president who would have been presiding over that DOJ for the entire period we're looking at here with regard to Hillary's emails and leading into the change of power with the Trump presidency was former President Barack Obama. The, uh, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan, that paragon of truth and virtue. So I'd like a little more information on that one. Starting to think that the buck stops with Obama on this one if you will, um, that maybe this is much higher up than we had even imagined beforehand. Because if President Obama was getting briefed on these emails, he's lying to the American people about it, and having discussions about what's going to happen, that is a big deal. And I have not even gotten into the Grassley memo, uh, the Democrats' 10-pager that's coming out. We've got, we've got a lot more to talk about all this stuff here, but we will be uh, right back. Stay there, team.
5: The president wants to know what they're doing to try to stop Trump because that's clearly from all the other text messages. That's what they were working on. That's what they cared about. We need to get to the bottom of this and find out what the president knew and when he knew it. Clearly, the FBI covered for Hillary Clinton. The DOJ covered for Hillary Clinton. And uh, we have got to get the facts out.
3: Congressman Gomer is right. We have to get the facts out. And yes, the uh, DOJ did cover for. Hillary Clinton, and we've all seen now the way that DOJ investigators, prosecutors, how they act when they want to get somebody, i.e. the Mueller probe, versus how they act when they want to do everything they can to make sure that the problem goes away, which is really just a description of the Hillary email investigation by the Department of Justice. Uh, it's, It's troubling, but here we are, my friends. It is troubling to see how disparate the treatment is of democrats and republicans by the department of justice but i'd rather us be living in reality and deal with the truth than allow these false narratives to just continue on unchallenged Um, the notion of uh, obama getting briefed by this fbi guy struck is (laughs) well we need to find out like i said and, and we need more information speaking of information you got a Democrat memo that's supposed to come out relatively soon or or is on schedule, I should say, to come out relatively soon. And those of you who listen to the show every day will remember that yesterday I said to you that the Democrats might play games with redactions. And as of today, the Washington Examiner, remember, I said that they'll include lots of classified stuff so they can just in their memo, write Super secret squirrel, super secret squirrel and then the, de- the republicans lied about this other thing and then super secret squirrel super secret squirrel just keep repeating stuff that they know will ne- will not get through because it is actually sensitive it is actually cl- uh, classified and then whatever redactions exist in the document whatever blacked out lines there are they can just say whatever they want publicly about how oh the republicans are being are being so unfair they don't want the truth to get out see all these redactions well guess what i said that yesterday this is the washington washington examiner today quote the democratic memo republicans say is very different from theirs it's full of sources and methods said one lawmaker referring to highly classified information it includes material they clearly cannot release it's nothing but sources and methods said a third uh second and a third even to the footnotes And then, in case you were wondering, you have Adam Schiff weighing in.
4: We want to make sure that the White House does not redact our memo for political purposes, and obviously that's a deep concern.
3: Let's think about this for a second. If the White House is redacting, what what would be the the circumstances under which the, the White House would want less information to get out there, right? There's this whole conspiracy against Trump. There's I can't conceive of anything that would go into the Carter Page FISA warrant that would hurt Trump. Because if something existed in the Carter Page FISA warrant that would hurt Trump, we would have already heard about it, everybody. We would have already heard about it. So here's what I'll say. I hope Republicans, uh, I hope Republicans call their bluff on this one. If Schiff and the other Democrats decide that their approach is going to be to try and put redaction landmines in this document, uh, I think that we should, you know, the Republicans should say, all right, go for it. M- meaning that they should say, no, no, we'll, we'll clear this. And now I know people say, oh, buck the sources and methods. You know, if some guy said something to some guy about Carter Page at some point, is that, you know, we, we got to see who we're talking about here. I mean, I'm theorizing because I don't know what the sources and methods are, but it's a very important issue. Sometimes you got to let the truth be known, folks. And I think we're there. I think Republicans, if if Democrats are willing to let it, if they're willing to put it on paper and say, this is what we want to release, I say go for it. The more transparency, the better, because I can't see how more information hurts Trump.
2: He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back.
1: This newly declassified criminal referral released by Senators Grassley and Graham shows the FBI relied heavily on the Trump dossier to secure these surveillance warrants and that Clinton associates were feeding information to the former British spy Christopher Steele as he compiled the dossier. And it reads in part, the report was information that came from a foreign subsource who was in touch with Redacted, a contact of Redacted, a friend of the Clintons, who passed it to redacted. There are indications that the blacked-out sections refer to a longtime Clinton ally and friend, Sidney Blumenthal, who you'll remember provided intelligence reports to then-Secretary of State Clinton through her unsecured personal server used exclusively for government business.
6: When you hear who the source, one of the sources of that information is, you're going to think, oh my gosh, I've heard that name somewhere before. Where could it possibly have been? And uh, the foreign source, the domestic source. And I'm trying to think how Secretary Clinton defined him. I think she said he was an old friend who emailed her from time to time. Cindy I think that's Blumenthal?
3: A, that'd be really warm. Really warm, Trey Gowdy says. Really warm. Now, Trey Gowdy remembers Cindy Blumenthal from the whole Benghazi situation because Secretary of State. At the time, Hillary Clinton, you will recall from the Benghazi investigations, was reaching out to Sidney Blumenthal as some kind of expert on Libya. Just before we get deeper into this conversation, who's Sidney Blumenthal? Think of him as one of the Clintons' chief hatchet men. He was a White House advisor under Bill Clinton. And when Bill Clinton was engaged in his philandering and harassing and lying and scheming and conspiring, Sidney Blumenthal was like the first guy to always tell the rest of the White House, you know, we got to we got to get out there on the front line to defend Bill's reputation and has since then been something of a. Well, a guy who does stuff for the Clintons, uh, including spreading. He was a journalist for a while. He's written books, I think, including spreading conspiracies all to the all for the benefit of the Clintons. He'll plant stories in the media. He is a political, operative, and opportunist. Very close ties to the Clintons. When When you're emailing directly the Secretary of State on an issue like Libya and she cares what you have to say about it, clearly you've got some influence. So wouldn't this be interesting now? We've been questioning here the whole FISA process around the Carter Page warrant and what went into it and everything else. Now we're starting to get some very big... Signals. I mean, it's not definite yet, but getting some signals that a close Clinton hatchet man, right, Sidney Blumenthal, may have been passing along information to Steele, who was passing along information to the FISA court. My friends, this would this is like a step removed from finding out that one of the sources for the information used in the dossier. To get a FISA surveillance warrant on an American citizen was Hillary Clinton, <laughs> okay this is really and I know that sounds crazy, but this is not that far you know this is this is somebody who has close and continuing contact and access to Hillary when she 's Secretary of State and has a decades long relationship with her and now it looks like it's possible that some of the information Steele got came from a Hillary, uh, a a Hillary supporting, really a, a Hillary acolyte and a political hitman of sorts, somebody who goes out there and goes after the opponents of the Clintons. That's what this guy does. That's one of his roles, right? He kind of, he puts on the black hat and he goes out there and spreads the rumors and does all that stuff. If that isn't undermining Whatever faith and trust that we should or could have in this FISA process at this point, I don't know, guys. How much worse is it going to get? Today we found out that the FBI, or at, at the top level, an FBI agent involved in Hillary's emails may have been updating Obama despite his very clear and definitive claims to the contrary on Hillary's email investigation, which brings up some questions about that. And... We found out that most likely a close friend of Hillary Clinton's, who was Trump's opponent at the time, everybody, in the presidential race, a close friend of Hillary's, may have been one of the ones feeding information into the dossier. I mean, this guy Steele just put together a gossip compendium, and that's what this was. This was just a compilation of gossip. No real verification, no nothing. And I remember reading it when BuzzFeed first published it, I guess in January of 2017 and thinking, no way, the stuff with the Russian hookers and all that I was just like, come on guys, doesn't even you know th- th- that's the part in the movie we're like, I'm gonna walk out. this doesn't make any sense this is this is garbage, you know, but these are people that supposedly we should trust that's that were that were worth the FBI trusting. Now, I'm stuck. And I wonder what you think about this. I'm stuck going back and forth on on a on the following issue that affects everything we're talking about here. On the one hand, I think that there was a clear effort to be uh, to abuse power at the at the Department of Justice against Trump and in Hillary's favor. Stretching back through all the all the things we talk about, the Russia collusion probe and Hillary's emails. I think that there was a clear. But then I also feel like was there a Trump derangement syndrome that had already spread among these individuals such that they did they did they really believe this stuff or was it a convenient pretext to go after Trump? You see what I'm saying? Did They actually think that there was a. A plot afoot because they're so psychotically anti-Trump or were they conjuring the plot entirely knowing it was completely bogus just because it was a way of trying to take Trump down I, I go back and forth on this because when you look at the uh, the evidence and, and it's also hard to to assess all of this new evidence and information when so many of these different actors that we're seeing particularly like struck at the FBI and others assume that this would never come out. So we've got to take that into account as well, right they, they were taking actions that they figured would never come to the light of day, which means that you know that, that's when I start to lean toward, you know what they knew that this was nonsense, but they figured that hey, we can get away with it, right We can this, this gives us an excuse to surveil some of Trump's people and to start leaking stories about this to the media. Because there's another thing you have to remember. Obama was told about the Russia interference in the election. We knew that, right? And, And the Obama administration chose not to make it a bigger deal. Maybe this was offered up to Obama on a silver platter, so to speak, by the FBI, by the DOJ. And had he chosen to, he could have made the Russia collusion narrative, a much bigger pre-election story. But he might have figured out, you know what, this is this could backfire. And I think, by the way, it would have, you know, because there were some news reports were already coming out about this. There were some efforts in the media to get that story going. But Obama was not. And you had all these officials, too. Right. Brennan, former CIA director and others saying, hold on, you know, we should have been more aggressive about Russia collusion. We should have come out sooner on the story. Well, why didn't they? When we think that one through together, folks, I think it's much more likely that they had they had come up with. Essentially, they didn't take action on the conspiracy that they had concocted before the election. What I mean by that is why do they have, you know, the, the, the leaks about uh, Trump and Russia and their surveillance and all the things that we started to hear? Maybe it was all being presented by some of these pro-Hillary deep staters to Obama, uh, to Loretta Lynch, you know, to Comey, to McCabe, etc., and or or I'm sorry, by them to Obama, uh, and they just decided it's too risky to try to run with this. I-, I see that as a real possibility here because they have they have told us that they chose at the highest level, not to make Russia a bigger issue in advance of, that Russian meddling was not going to be made a bigger issue in advance of the election. Why? Why do you think that is, given all that they, given their psychotic fixation on it now? I'm starting to think that maybe they put all this together and that they had, that this was all in place to be the ultimate October surprise. And there's other, when we look at some of the way the news stories went, you can see it. But Obama just couldn't quite bring himself to, to uh, do it before the election. You know, look, he put the sanctions on Russia afterwards, right? I mean, you see, there's all this stuff. I, I feel like they, they didn't—they built this machine, and then they did not fully let it loose, the Russia collusion narrative, right before the election, because it would have looked a little too convenient, a little too much like a construct— and so that explains some of the sloppiness with all this, too, and the way that this comes together. I, I'm hoping that this that you see what I'm, what I'm saying here. I know we're, we're getting down deep into the weeds here. So my basic premise is that the FBI guys, all the stuff we're seeing now is that they were trying to pull together the FISA award on Carter Page. They were trying to create something that they wanted to make public and the Obama administration could make public. And the, it was going to basically be Russia wants to get what Russia wants to elect Trump. Trump people are working with the Russians, and I've been talking to the Russians about how to elect Trump. They dropped that story in October. It cost Trump the election. Hillary wins, and all those people—Struck, McCabe, call me—the rest of them—they're all heroes, above suspicion. I, that's how I see it. This is how I see it all coming together. You could, you can call me crazy, but that's what I see. We've got every line lit. So let's get in some calls. I'll be back right after this break. All right, let's get into it, team. we got lines lit. Let's do it. Uh, we have Brian in Worcester, Massachusetts on the line. Hey, Brian.
7: Hey, Buck. You know, I was thinking, if uh, the Democrats uh, packed this memo full of sources and methods uh, in order to force redactions by the GOP and cause a whole bunch of, you know, confusion and make people wonder why they, if they're hiding anything, why not just give the Democrats complete control over what they can redact? Because I don't think they're going to expose their own sources and methods. And it completely takes away from uh, from the GOP, you know, as far as,
3: you You know, know, I think, Brian, that they have to. I think that the Republicans in committee would have to vote in favor of release. So I don't think there's a way that the you know what I'm saying, like it's it's based on the vote. So I don't think that the, the Republicans have to vote yay or nay. They're not. Otherwise, it doesn't go anywhere. So I don't think that would work. But now we're getting pretty down into the processes and I. Look, I've never been in Congress, so I don't know exactly how it goes.
7: I thought that they had uh, already uh, voted on releasing it, or was that just the Intelligence Council?
3: Yeah, no, that that's the, the House Intelligence Committee voted on release. But now it goes to it goes through the exact same process that the Republican memo did. So now it goes to, uh, there's a, like a period of a few days, or I forget, five days. The White House is looking at it. Uh, the FBI intelligence community can also weigh in on it. And then I think it goes back to the House after that. And then there's a final, sort of a final release. I think that's how it goes. But again, there's there's games that are being played with the process. And, and I would like to see just more information coming out. So I don't think, I, I don't know. Let, let me look into that, Brian. Maybe your plan would work. I have a feeling, though, that the Republicans wouldn't be in a position where they can just wash their hands of it, right? But then again, you get to the well, whole thing about, well, why have any redactions at all? Why not just... If everyone agrees that you can't say certain stuff, what's the point of leaving it in with the blacked out lines? Although I, I didn't even talk about the Grassley referral about Christopher Steele that was released today, and there's a lot of blacked out stuff in that, a lot of redactions, which raise some questions for me. So we're working in some <laughs> some gray areas of of blacked out information, Brian. But I do appreciate you calling in, Shields High. Thanks for thanks for holding. Let's get uh gretchen in long beach mississippi hey gretchen
8: hey how are you
3: i'm good thank you for your call
8: good 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 yeah well my my thought is along the same line kind of as Brian's. um i, I kind of wish in my opinion if it's safe enough to i would give the, the democrats here you go here's your 24 hours um this is your paper your document you you want to – I'm going to release it in 24 hours because that's what you want. You've requested it. Mr. Schiff has made it quite clear. Here you go back. Make your – whatever you want to do with it. Put it in their court. And if it does have to go back to Congress, which it probably has to go to committee, the vote will go down party lines like it did before. Protect the people that need to be protected. I mean, they already know who that is. But let it out. It's already got to come out. And and then it's their – it's their it's, – It's their thing. They own it. And my other question was, since they wrote this document and they want to reveal these sources and methods and stuff, isn't that revealing since they wrote it, they own it, do they not also also own perhaps the release of classified information if they do not redact it themselves, which would be illegal? I'm wondering how that, you know, I know we're kind of getting into the wonk world of, you know, down in the weeds. But I'm wondering, then, if, if they've written it, it's their document, then should they also own any of the repercussions legally?
3: Well, it, but if they go through the process, then the information is effectively declassified, right? So, so nothing that can come out of this process would be legally actionable as classified information because if Congress okay. approves the release, it is it is it is declassified, right? So
8: it doesn't okay. mean
3: yeah, it doesn't maintain its classified status after the Congress does this. So that's what's really what's really interesting is in classification, and this is I think uh, just a, a worthwhile addition to this conversation, Gretchen. Classification is always a little bit of a, a little bit of an art, not a science, uh, yeah. and and the Ooh. truth is. What is and is not sensitive government information, the government just always says, well, yeah, it's classified. I mean, if there's any hint of it's classified, they say, yes, it's classified. They always err on the side of that to the point where it's actually silly. I mean, they they will classify, you know, what I had for lunch yesterday. I mean, it's insane. (laughs) But the uh, you know, the other side of this is that you have to always have a balancing of our right to know and Congress's obligations for oversight to the executive branch's ability to conduct some of its some of what it does in, in secret, particularly on right. counterintelligence investigations, any intelligence-related matter, and, and all the rest of it. So it's a very complicated—go ahead, Gretchen.
8: Okay. Well, I don't know how—you know, look, I have a, I have a son who's deployed. So we can't talk about—we uh, can talk about the weather, <laughs> you know, but there's a lot that we don't talk about. Like, I have his dog. Your dog is doing great, you know, and superficial early kind of things. And I don't ask. And, I mean, as military parents and wives and stuff, we all know these things. You know? We, yeah. We, so we all kind of know. So Hil- you, Hillary
3: apparently just, doesn't know, by the way, but you know.
8: <laughs> well, apparently not. But, you know, you have to think about even the smallest little thing um, can make a big difference. You just, you never really know. So, you know, we kind of understand, and maybe some of the parents' with wives are going maybe a little overboard and being whatever. It's kind of awkward. It's a little hard, but it's just part of the deal. So I don't understand, uh, you know, well, the, the Hillary emails and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's just, um, I think it shows an arrogance of power.
3: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, no, I mean, and, um, and also a lack of accountability and, and a, a, a double standard in the justice system. Gretchen, tell your. Tell your son that uh, we here in the Freedom Hut send him our regards and our thanks for his service, all right? Thank you very much for calling in. Team, we are going to roll into uh, this break. Top of the hour coming up. Second hour of the Buck Saxon Show is upon us. Uh, We have a lot to discuss here, including the Pelosi. Was it seven or eight hours that she was up there uh, yammering on? We'll get into that and more. Stay with me.
2: He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops.
8: If a DREAM Act were brought to the floor,
1: it would pass immediately with strong bipartisan support. And I commend my Republican colleagues for their courage in speaking out on this. Yet our DREAMers hang in limbo with a cruel cloud of fear and uncertainty above them. The Republican moral cowardice must end. Members of Congress are trustees of the people and of our nation. Why are we here if not to protect the patriotic young people who are determined to contribute and to strengthen America?
3: So uh, welcome back to the Buck Section show, everybody. Hour two. Uh, that was uh, your favorite, Nancy Pelosi. She gave an eight hour speech today on the House floor. She went on for eight hours about dreamers. Now, there's a lot that I want to say here. Let me start with this. Democrats have a weird obsession with this issue. You'll notice this. There's a lot of other stuff going on in the country, a lot of other things that matter to Americans, and yet this has become the primary policy concern, primary policy fight for the Democrat Party. They are using their powers in elected office to advocate for illegal aliens, which is what dreamers are. It's not a, that, that's not to impugn each and every one of them as individuals. It's just a factual statement about their legal, or in this case, illegal, status. This is issue number one for Democrats. I wonder why. And yet, at the same time, you had a very interesting phenomenon today, one that I think did not get nearly enough attention, you had Nancy Pelosi, I've got to speak for eight, for eight hours on the House floor, talking about the Dreamers. I mean, Nancy, progressive private jet Pelosi. She's out there talking about Dreamers and how much she wants to help You know, these patriotic. And by the way, if we're going to start saying things like they're patriotic, then I also want to look at, okay, um, what are really the numbers on Dreamers in terms of high school graduation, employment rate, Criminal background. Let's really get into it, then. Don't tell me that that's mean and nasty. If we're going to start being told, oh well, they're all great, so therefore we should change the law for them, which is what Pelosi is saying. But what you saw happen today was was very instructive. Not Pelosi blathering on for eight hours about dreamers. I just love the dreamers. Um, But you had Chuck Schumer being very. Uh, pleased about the budget deal now they raised the debt ceiling right they got a budget deal out. so oh they're gonna have the big fight the shutdown nope they didn't the reason they didn't have the fight is because the last one they lost and they're they think they can use this brinksmanship over the debt ceiling the federal government's debt ceiling as a way of getting the public to support their position more republicans will look bad the american people will start to say yeah democrats dreamers that's what we're all really focused on so they got a budget deal it just happened yesterday funding the government until march right that's what they've decided to do and yet chuck schumer is saying this is a good thing nancy pelosi is giving an eight-hour speech about dreamers which is no one really cares about, but it's a lot of grandstanding, right? So what's really happening here? Why is the Senate minority leader saying, yeah, let's move on from this and let's just get a budget deal done, when the House minority leader is like, "Yeah, this is terrible, we need to talk about it for eight hours? Well, here's a hint. The Morning Consult, a polling company that's been growing very rapidly in recent years, doing very well, has a poll with the following. The GOP, this was just out today. GOP has a 13-point edge over Democrats on national security, a 9-point edge over Democrats on the economy, a 6-point edge over Democrats on jobs, and a 6-point edge over Democrats on immigration. But wait a second. I thought the American people think that that the dreamers are just the heart and soul of America because they're just dreaming about a better future. That's what the media would lead us to believe. They will tell us that the American people are on the side of the Democrats on this issue. And yet, no. No, in fact, Trump highlighting the cost of illegal immigration, highlighting the criminality that is a very serious consideration whenever we talk about illegal immigration. Gangs like MS-13, which we spent quite a bit of time talking about yesterday. He's showing that there's another there's a whole other side to this discussion. In fact, there are many sides to this discussion and the American people are not in favor of an amnesty. They are just not. Pelosi can tell us all day that the House will vote for it and this is the right thing to do and everything else. But the American people do not want an amnesty and the Democrats do not want a deal. That's why Chuck Schumer's happy to move along. See, Pelosi She knows that she can get away with saying whatever she wants on Dreamers and she can just grandstand on it. That's what she's doing. Eight hours of grandstanding today. But Schumer in the Senate, he's going to have to deal with a more complicated set of circumstances on the possibility of an amnesty and on Dreamers and everything else going on here. Because Trump has made quite an offer to them as an as an opening bid. One point eight million. If Dreamers are so important to the Democrat Party, Why are they not willing to meet the Trump administration halfway on border security, on E-Verify, on a wall, on all these other issues? If Dreamers are an issue of of such great importance to Democrats that Pelosi needs to stand up and talk about them for eight hours, there's no way that the Democrats could walk away from a very serious and I would offer generous first Opening bid from the uh, from the Trump side on this. So they'd rather just move on because they don't want to they don't want to actually get into this fight. They just want to keep talking about it. They want to keep talking about it in the hopes that they can use this as an issue in the midterms. And that at some point they'll just be able to uh, fundraise off this and or that they will be able to fundraise off this and just continue on pretending that they have the moral, not just the moral high ground, which they will never stop pretending. But also the American people are with them on this. They just frankly are not. But there's another component here, one that is not getting nearly enough attention. And this one is a bit of a bummer, everyone. right? Pelosi rambling on for eight hours semi-coherently uh, in a way that is just meant to draw attention to her and how great she is. Who cares? But there's also a problem here about what's going on with the budget and spending in this country. And I know that it's not it's not hip. It's not cool these days to discuss the debt, to discuss the deficit, but I'm starting to get a little worried. One of the issues that those who actually know about the markets, and I'm not pretending to be one of them, but I do read people who know about the markets, and I know people who are very knowledgeable about macro trends in the economy, and I ask them questions, as one does when one wants to learn, is that the possibility of inflation is looming quite large in much of what's going on in the economy right now because that 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 is one issue, um, and also raising interest rates, right? Raising interest rates, which would mean that our servicing of the debt, and this goes back to our Tea Party days, folks, our servicing of the debt becomes a much bigger concern, a much bigger part of the outlay that we currently have of federal spending. Now, this is not going to be the most you know, knock your socks off, exciting, sexy topic we ever discuss on the show. But I do, after the break, I do want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on with spending right now. Because we're not worried about spending on a parade, whether you like parades or not. But there's other stuff out there that should get some attention here, and we will get into it. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this. What do you think about just extending the extending the debt ceiling here, funding the government for another, whatever it is, six weeks or so, and... Why Pelosi and Schumer have this dissonance in their messaging. Something's going on, folks. What is that funky smell? Something something smells funky here. We should figure out what it is. Um, and we will be right back.
8: If
1: you believe that we are all God's creation, as I do, as people of faith do, and I do believe faith is a gift that everyone doesn't have, so you may not have that same perspective.
3: Getting a little lecture on faith from Catholic politician Nancy Pelosi, who is an abortion extremist who believes in abortion for nine months of her pregnancy. That's interesting, isn't it? Anyway, uh, Pelosi... Gave her speech today on immigration. We're starting to see that Democrats are unserious on the issue. They really just want to use it for fundraising and as a as a cudgel, as a weapon against Republicans to say that they are racist, to say that they're bad people and to just as much as possible play the race card against Republicans. That's what the immigration issue really boils down to for now for Democrats in the hopes that eventually they can. Uh, mobilize that sentiment into victory at the polls and then they'll just have a mass amnesty. And And what the country looks like with that mass amnesty, just in terms of the politics, we become a single party state, folks. It'll be Democrats and Democrat light. Some of you are like, Buck, we already have that. But that's a discussion maybe that we'll hold off on for now. But here's my problem with what's going on with the GOP right now, folks. That's right. I'm not just going to sit here like everything is... Isn't that the Lego, Lego song? Everything is awesome, right? Yeah. I can't be the, the Lego theme song guy for the GOP here in the Freedom Hut. Because while some things are awesome, and Trump has been impressing me with the first year and what he's been doing the first, now, couple of months of this year. Um, but Trump is doing a good job. The GOP overall, though, I got some problems with it. Like, for example... Uh, they bust, they have busted through the spending cap by $300 billion. They've been raising the debt limit time and again. There's no cuts that are being made anywhere. Um, they will not cut entitlements. They will not deal with Medicare, Medicaid, or social security. They've actually thought about getting earmarks back and they're spending a lot of money. I mean, I, I think, are we going to what's it? What's it? A trillion dollars on track to spend a trillion dollars? In the whole, I mean, not a trillion, not, not total, a trillion dollars more than we take in. So that's a problem. Um, and I think what's unfair here is that Obama racked up insane debt in his eight years, as we know. Um, but with the artificially low interest rates because of Fed policy, the debt, the servicing of that debt was not quite the, uh, the punishment that it could have otherwise been for all of us. And this is really just racking up debts that future generations will have to pay. But in the meantime, if interest rates rise, you're going to have a problem because if you got whatever it is now, I forget what the percentage of our uh, uh, percentage of our outlays goes towards servicing the debt we already have, which is $20 trillion. But as that percentage ticks up, you start spending a lot of money just on keeping up with the money you've already spent, right? It's like if you've got a credit card, and you you've got a ten thousand dollar outstanding balance, and it goes from all right. Well, now you're paying a a. Well, we're talking credit cards here, so the APR is really high, right? I mean, fortunately, servicing the debt is not that high. But you know, if you go from a five to a twenty percent APR in your credit card, that's going to hurt because now money that you're going to use spending for groceries is going to go to paying down the debt you've already run up on that credit card because of the raise in the percentage, the annual percentage rate, the APR. Government kind of functions a similar way here. If interest rates rise and we have to pay back interest on the debt that we've already accrued, it starts to crowd out other government spending. And now we start to feel it. And by the way, government spending, I think it was Milton Friedman, right? Government spending is just just another form of taxation, folks. So while we can cut taxes on one side, if we don't cut spending and keep going deeper and deeper into debt, the interest rates that we will be paying on that debt are going to be rising, and that means we're going to be paying off even more. And this is how this is how things get scary for the economy. Because here's what I can tell you: nobody knows when this debt go when the debt thing goes bad. No one knows when the debt bomb goes off. No one, no one, no one, no one. I've heard everybody who's talked about this who's knowledgeable. They don't know. They can't say a 25 trillion or a 30 trillion. All of a sudden, it all comes crumbling down. But here's what the people who watch this can tell you. At some point, it does. I don't know when, but the music will stop. It will be a very big problem. And how that looks for the future of this country is something that nobody can really answer. Nobody really knows. So I I think we have to start being realistic about what the GOP is doing here. Look, if if the decision is we're just going to party and do what we can and hope the future generations figure it out somehow. Well, that's one way to go. But that's kind of what we're doing right now without admitting that that's what's going on. It's not a good thing. I know, I know, everything is not awesome. I wish I could say it was, but that is a concern. I will raise it occasionally here on the show. I will not, uh, I will not belabor the point, hopefully. Right, Carl, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina? Hey, Buck. Hey, what's up, buddy?
7: Hey, now, i got a solution for all the, all the, the woes that we're talking about. It's, it's called a fair tax. You get to keep all the money you make, all your income tax, and all the people that live here get to pay um, uh, a consumption tax, which means like uh, a quarter for every dollar you spend goes to the government. And it's been figured out that that'll pay all the government bills, and it'll take care of all the DACA problems, all the immigration problems, but more people here will have more, more people consuming and paying our national debt off. It's it's that simple. There's no reason to play politics with my income tax money, and and that's all Nancy Pelosi wants to do. You can tell her to shut up, but you know if I'm not if I don't have a dime in the there, I'm not paying any income tax, I don't care how many people's here. I mean, I, I get to keep my whole paycheck. That's my that's what makes me happy.
3: Yeah, look, I I would love a fair tax. I mean, I think taxes are still way too high. It's hard to celebrate that much. When you just had a little bit of a cut in what is already, I think, an unfair and confiscatory taxation system. But to keep in mind that the entitlement state that we currently have, and this is... Look, the expenditures of the federal government really just come down to Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. That's where the money is. And Social Security is a very popular program. People want to keep it. That's manageable. Social Security is manageable. It's Medicare and Medicaid that are... Uh, the beasts that can eat up the entirety of not entirety, but eat up way too much of government outlays and, and government spending. And it's just not popular to tell people that someone's not going to pay for most of their health care when they're old. And it's not popular to tell people that they're not going to get government uh, sponsored health care if they are below a certain income threshold. Right. That, that's just and neither political party wants to touch it. And it's an unfortunate circumstance. But I, I'm with you on a fair tax. I think there'll be a way better way to go and you know there's there's a whole other discussion about how the notion of a federal income tax that is the same across the whole country when cost of living is very different across the country is it's just inherently unfair uh what goes on right now but carl thank you for calling in from north carolina anthony out on the eastern shore of maryland what's up anthony
6: yes sir how are you doing bucks good good. talking with you uh there's an issue going on with the uh spending and all that I was kind of watching the news on TV a little bit with a couple of these uh, agreements with with the uh spending and all that and agree and not agree uh my my issue is the mess that's been put in the last eight or ten years um with with the absorbent spending over the obama administration then all of a sudden you know we got uh president trump in there that is trying to help us out and and um i think uh give it a year or so with these tax breaks and all i think uh in my personal opinion just like the Reagan years things will start mellowing out but in the meantime you know let's get something going let's get something going
3: but you think interest Um, rates need to go up i see here
6: I say I'm thinking for it's all over. Well, yeah, I'm not not no eight ten percent, but uh, where we're at now, they are down like one percent, two percent.
3: Yeah, look, I mean, for savers, the the situation there's really been a transfer of wealth uh, that's gone on yeah, away away from it. savers. So that's been and that's a function of government monetary policy stretching back now for many years, and that's a problem, right? And it's one of the reasons well, there's so think, much money think, yeah, chasing yields in the stock means- market.
6: I think it needs to be a little bit stronger to get the dollar stronger, which which is, I've heard President Trump say that, you know, look, I'd like to have the stronger dollar. Right now, it's weak. Um, with with everything else going on and everything getting along together, I think everything's going to come together and start flying right.
3: I hope so, my friend. Anthony, thanks for calling from Maryland. Shields high, my friend. Um, I... Uh got to talk to you about some other stuff coming up here oh yeah the military parade that trump talked about oh the media's all freaking out like trump is a dictator he wants to have a parade that honors our military oh no talk about that and more coming up right after the break stay with me
2: Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. We We fight for the truth in a team effort. And Buck is back with our next play.
3: So before I talk about how Democrats, some of them, not a lot of them, are acting like Trump's suggestion about a military parade is the equivalent of when the, what is it, the, uh, the Cubans and the Chinese invade in Red Dawn. I always get the, remake confused isn't it oh no sorry the soviets and the cubans invade in the original red dawn and then i think it's the north koreans and the chinese in the remake of red dawn they're acting though like it's that scary that trump am i right yeah i'm right that's that's how i roll uh, but before we get into that I, I just wanted to take some time here to hand out some buck slaps yeah. oh yeah one more give me one more give me a buck yeah. slap there we go I don't know why I don't know why we make a karate noise with a buck slap, but it adds a little bit of the, you know, and we really know what's going on. So. All right. First up for the buck slap, we've got uh, John Heilman, the guy over at MSNBC, who I always confuse with the other guy who lost his job because he was like a harassing predator predator type. Uh, But John uh, Heilman said the following about the White House chief of staff.
4: Chief of Staff walked into the White House briefing room a few months ago and, uh, attacked an uh, African American Congresswoman. I-, I can tell you that there are an awful lot of African Americans who, uh, who detected racial animus and the way in which that played out. And so I think there's a, a pattern here that pre- where we're on these issues that touch uh, culture and touch race Ooh. where the Chief of Staff is is not that far away from where Donald Trump is. Okay.
3: Heilman saying that, uh, that, that, Three-star General Kelly, who lost his son in combat, uh, say he's a racist. Well, that's, this, this is how the, the Democrats, this is how they analyze. That was on Morning Joe, I could tell just from Mika, being like, oh, my gosh. Uh, that's just a slur. I mean, that's so unacceptable from Heilman. And I would note that, you know, in, in a previous administration, if you made such a, uh, such a baseless and scurrilous charge against the White House chief of staff, you wouldn't be allowed on the different TV networks, really. You know, you'd be told, oh, no, you can't do that. But going after uh, John Kelly saying he's a racist. Also, just note here that this is one of the games the Democrats love to play. They'll say, well, and they'll name a bunch of minorities and women that Trump has attacked or that one of Trump's people, uh, one of his top advisors, has you know, publicly tangled with in some way. And I just want to note, OK, if there's one thing we all know, it's that Trump will tangle with anybody. All right. Trump is he's giving out Trump slaps left and right. I mean, he does not discriminate. He will throw down with anyone. And it's just so pathetic that they try to fit into this. This uh, narrative, into this mold that somehow Trump is only picking on or in this case, John Kelly, his white, his chief of staff is only picking on uh, minorities and women. Therefore, he's a misogynist and a racist like there's just no basis. And this is a this is a symptom of Trump derangement syndrome. Because it's an argument that can't stand up to five minutes of scrutiny, right? It, it is just Trump derangement syndrome, pure and simple. I just noticed, I saw a commercial cycling with the Statue of Liberty on an island. I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. For a guy who loves freedom and America so much and literally lives in New York City and used to have you know, a window where you could see, when I would go to work, could see the Statue of Liberty I feel like that's unacceptable. I feel like I'm going to have to remedy this. I think you need to buck slap yourself. I think I do need to buck slap myself. That needs to get... (laughs) Okay, all right, all right. That needs to get remedied. Next up here, uh, just a few different clips that got me. This is the Heilman one. He's just being a punk. He gets a buck slap. And then you get Cuccinelli versus Navarro. Now, Anna Navarro is a CNN favorite because she says she's a Republican, but all she does is trash Republicans, particularly Donald Trump. And... Gets away with saying uh, just a a long slew, a, a series of uh, idiotic and nasty things on television. They love her over there, though, because she is great at she's a Republican, quote unquote, who's great at trashing Republicans. Never has a really a, a terse word for a Democrat, but loves to. And she speaks for the Latino community at some level. Right. That's that's part of she'll say, oh, we you know Latinos this and Latinos that she will speak for Latino community. She is among, and I can tell you this from my own experience over there, among the least insightful, least well-read, least polite, and least worthwhile commentators on TV at CNN, period. Among the very, very worst, which I will say, that's saying something. Uh, She's going up against Ken Cuccinelli, whom I'm sure you're all familiar with from his long career in, in, uh, in Republican politics. But they got into the DACA thing, and things got a little nasty we haven't gotten to the heart of of this problem at all. The president
2: is willing to have a showdown with the Democrats again, that's where the shutdown comment came from, because he knows how it's gonna end. And my last comment is that since the last shutdown, only one side has given any ground on this, and that is President Trump has gone from the 690,000 actual DACA number to a hypothetical number of 1.8 million that we aren't even sure of uh, because none of those people have made contact with the government.
4: So the words of General Kelly, they don't concern you at all?
2: Uh, Look, the guy's a military man. He started off, what you all have characterized him saying is everybody's lazy. That isn't what he said. He started off, and you played the quote, some people think that uh, they might have been scared and so they didn't sign he up. He said, "Get off some your ass!" They might have just okay, been come, lazy. Come on, Ken.
7: He said, right. "Get off your ass!" That's disrespectful, and, and, and I, I, I don't think of it's good it is. to pretend. You know, to, to, he so, also so says that. Might, just say it's Van, disrespectful. Of course people and it's people were afraid it.
2: to sign, it, people of, of afraid to sign up. People were afraid to sign up, and for, for good reasons. Look. Who cares? I, I care up. that people are breaking the law. That over the people who care, the people who care are, who care are immigrants is. who are are going get are, amnesty. No, I'll tell you who cares. Let no me tell you who cares, Ken. Let me let me explain Democrats to you who cares.
1: Quick, quick, Can Ken, I answer I your, your damn question about Americans who cares? The people who care too, are the immigrants who are sick and tired of having this White House attack us and bash us on a daily basis. There's the Navarro special. The people who are malign.
3: And she just keeps going on and talking over him and talking over him. that. That's what that's what Anna Navarro does over at CNN to talk over people, yell and scream and Trump and racist and so mean to immigrants and it's all about immigrants all the time. Uh, I would note that one of the one of the tricks that you may have, if you could watch that whole clip, which I wouldn't recommend, but it went on for like six minutes. We played a little bit of it there for you. Is that they say that the segment is ending, and so that means that you know they're they're wrapping it up. And then though, when one of the Two Democrat guests. It was three on one. Don Lemon, Democrat, Van Jones, Democrat, Anna Navarro, Democrat, and then uh, Ken Cuccinelli. When they're saying, all right, we'll give you the last word, we'll go. Then they stop and they let Navarro just go on this this tirade about, you know, how Trump and racism and immigrants and blah, 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 blah. And just just the usual blather, the usual verbal vomit that comes out of her on CNN. And they extend the segment magically. It just gets longer all of a sudden. Oh, no, let her go. Let her go. Okay, she's uh, she's slamming him. She's smearing him. She's def- she's d- destroying uh, his argument. She's attacking the president. She- well, she's just really attacking Guccinelli too. Uh, and-, and then it's time to go to commercial break. CNN. This is CNN. Uh, they all deserve box slaps uh, over there these days. But we'll be back with more. Stay with me.
4: Senator John Heilman here. Um, the president apparently uh, would like to throw himself a parade, a military parade, um, <clears throat> troops and tanks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and There's some planning now underway, or at least dates are being considered. What say you? I say that it's a fantastic waste of money to amuse the president.
5: I don't think a, a show of military might. It reminds you of, uh, of what the Soviets uh, do and uh, what the Chinese do. Uh, And we need to honor our men and women in uniform. uh, But I think we ought to do so in a way that does not necessarily uh, appear uh, bellicose or threatening to the rest of the world. Uh, We want to be peacemakers, not war makers. Uh, It also uh, can be perceived as uh, jingoist in in some respects, uh, saber-rattling
3: in some respects. There you have a bunch of Democrats who, no surprise all of a sudden are concerned about government spending. Oh, my gosh, a parade. Uh, and this is one of the first times I think I've ever heard Democrats in elected office argue against any parade that I'm familiar with. I mean, we got we got parades going on for everything these days, folks. I mean, I live in New York City, and let me tell you, it's, you know— uh, this week it's the, uh, Ar- you know, not really, but, you know, it's the Armenian Parade. And next week it's the Bulgarian Parade. And next week it's the Bolivian Parade. And next week it's, you know, the Southern County Kerry of Ireland Parade. I mean, it's like, rah, it's just parade after parade. <laughs> parades all the time, all right? Everyone's having parades. I will tell you, as a general rule, I'm kind of anti-parade. This will not surprise any of you. I think that parades are overrated. Now, I'm not anti them as in I... Begrudge anyone who likes them or thinks that they should all end or something. I just find the parades are. It's like, oh yeah, oh that's loud. The floats here. Oh my god. Oh okay. I gotta wait a few more minutes. It's gonna be another. It's gonna be a, a you know another bunch of. Mar- I I can hear some drums. Let's give it a few minutes. You know they're gonna they're walking they're coming. I mean it's just not the most exciting spectator spectator sport I've ever. Yeah I know I'm a hater right now. I, I oh yeah you agree oh you're with me. Oh, all right producer Mike is giving me the. The thumbs down on parades, the thumbs up on parades or not? You know, look, sports teams have parades. Although your Eagles fans had their own parade, my friend, I saw that. Uh, but yeah, you know, look, I'm I'm not a parade guy, but you want to have a parade, have a parade. Here's the thing, though, the one time when I'm like, you know what, I like, I I think that this is important, and y- you need to show up is like Veterans Day, you know, Veterans Day parade, Memorial Day parade. Those are parades that matter, right? So anything that involves respect for the armed forces and the military, I think, goes into a a different category of parade. And this notion that Democrats have that it's so crazy that we would take some time to celebrate. You'll notice none of these people like what's the Women's March about? What the heck are they complaining about? Right. I mean, and by the way, you want to you want to get into the costs of some of these things at the Women's March in terms of, oh, that's right. City services, overtime, cleanup. The cleanup for some of the parades in New York City, it looks like a hurricane slash tornado slash, you know, bombing raid went through downtown Manhattan. I mean, it's crazy what happens after these parades. So it is very expensive uh, in a city budgetary sense. I mean, in the national budget having a parade, I think, is pretty minor. But the point is there's costs associated with all this stuff. But we're going to get we're going to get cheap all of a sudden. We're going to want to uh Pinch pennies. Pinch pennies? Uh, we're going to want to pinch pennies when it comes to honoring the military? Well, let's just take a little step back here for a second. Uh, and, and and we're going to start saying it's jingoistic. You know, we're not North Korea, uh, Dick Durbin. We're not saying that, you know, hey, look at these big missiles. We're going to fire them at you. I mean, that's not the point. It's just for us to celebrate our own military. And, and I would note we've got a few million active duty and recently uh, recently separated from the service, veterans who you know, fought wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, deployed all over the world. They defeated the Taliban. They defeated Saddam Hussein, ousted him from power, defeated the al-Qaeda in Iraq insurgency, handed Iraq back over to the Iraqis. And I mean, I'm just going off the top of my head, by the way. I'm not trying to forget or leave out anything. But has they've done a tremendous amount of good work for the world. And we all owe them, as the American people, a debt of gratitude that we'll never be able to pay. And so if we have a parade, why Why is that? This reminds me of when Democrats, right after 9-11, were kind of like, eh, I don't know about flags, you know, all the flag waving. Maybe everyone was like, oh, I'm sorry, what's that? You got a problem with the American flag now, elected officials and media pundits? Because that's weird. Now, all of a sudden, because Trump is for a military parade, they're against it. So maybe I should give them the benefit of the doubt and assume here that what's really at work is just their Trump derangement syndrome and that they don't have a problem with a parade for the military as a concept. They're just pretending to because they hate Trump so much. I just hate Trump. They just get so upset about all of this. But I recall, you know, after World War II, for example, some really... Timeless and inspiring photos of our uh, our boys coming back from overseas, so to speak, our men and women in uniform coming back to the states, ticker tape parade, the whole thing. What's what's wrong with that? I would need some of these Democrats to explain. Oh, yeah, they're worried about the budget. Right. Sure. That's what it's about. I mean, that's the biggest uh, crock of nonsense. But they're opposed to the uh, optics of this. They think that the perception of a parade would somehow, what, antagonize North Korea? Do we care about antagonizing North Korea? I think we, I think a little more antagonism against North Korea is probably a good thing. But that's, you know, the assumption, and, and by the way, anyone who says that we should, uh, that we are not, or or, or we are uh, overestimating the furor and opposition to this doesn't pay attention to what's going on in the world around them. You've got a guy named Arn Menconi, who is a former... Uh, A a former U.S. Senate candidate, I have a feeling he probably got a grand total of, uh, you know, five votes. But he says, we quote, we already have 13 people who have signed up to lay down in front of the tanks. If Trump brings out a military parade, this is not a military authoritarian state. We uh, will you join us? Hashtag Trump parade. These people think that this is like Tiananmen Square. You know, that they're standing up to Trump the dictator. It's like, no, this would be U.S. military. You know, it would be a parade where we're celebrating the military. And thank you very much. This should be a big thank you for your service day, right? So what's what's the issue? Isn't it so interesting? Democrats, you know, I know they all say things like, oh, we support the troops. You know, that's bipartisan. Meh. A lot of Democrats, they got some questions about the troops, to be honest with you. A lot of Democrats. In places they don't talk about at parties, they uh, they wonder, you know, why didn't they have the uh, I'm talking about Democrat elected politicians now. Uh, but they wonder, you know, they didn't have the, the fortitude to do it. And look, I know there are other Democrats who are in Congress who served honorably and are great and all that, too. But if you're looking for disdain for the military and political circles, even if it might be slightly uh, closeted disdain. But if you're looking for it, it's always among Democrats. You, you never find Republicans that are like, yeah, military, I'm kind of iffy on it. There are some Democrats that are like, man, I'm a little iffy on the whole U.S. military thing. It's, a, it's just the way it is. I mean, it's the way that their ideology lines up on a whole bunch of things, um, not, not the least of which is that we are the cause of problems in the world. Right? That's a classic leftist Democrat talking point that we cause, that our military causes problems all over the world. And you, the the Noam Chomsky view, if you will, on the military, that's a Democrat issue. That's not a Republican one. So I, like, I, I don't like parades, but I'd be down for a parade for a military. And I think that Trump's on onto, onto something here. If nothing else, once again, he manages to expose that Democrats just always seem to have a little bit of a. Well, Trump derangement syndrome clouds their judgment on everything. But also when it comes to the military, it's like, hmm. Why aren't you guys uh, on board for this a little bit sooner? A little strange, isn't it? I want to tell you about a Trump voter and a March for Women person that they had quite they had quite a little a little sit-down. I'm going to tell not sit-down, but a, an interaction. This is going to come up. You've got to hear this. It is illuminating about the way that coastal blue Democrat voters view Trump, Trumpism and people who vote for either of those things, um, I, I think we're going to have some fun with it. So uh, what happens when a, when somebody from the Women's March is having car trouble and is in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the wilds of Virginia, confronted with that always, uh, always terrifying situation of, a Trump voter who comes to her aid on the side of the highway. Oh, we will discuss that and uh, much more, my friends, coming up in the next hour. Stay with me. Welcome back to hour three of the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for being here with me. So there was a column that came out recently, and I feel like it was such an excellent, excellent exploration of the Trump derangement syndrome. It's almost like a, a clinical study in Trump derangement syndrome. And the piece was uh, in the Tampa Bay Times, so there you have it. And it was just published a couple of days ago or a day or two ago. And the title was I detest Trump, but a redneck fixed redneck fixed my Prius with zip ties. Now for us to really written by a, a woman named Ruth Mayer. Um, so I wanted to share with you some of what's in this piece because if you want an understanding for what Trump derangement syndrome does to people, I think this article is a really excellent exploration of it. Uh, this is the you know this is the progressive latte drinker coming face to face with an American let <laughs> like, just like an everyday American. It's terrifying. Some of you are like, I know, Buck, those latte drinkers are really scary. So here you go. I went to the, this. These are her words. I'm reading to you from her piece. I went to the Women's March in Washington, D.C., and I arrived home feeling heartbroken. It was the last way I expected to feel. I had spent the morning sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial with my 16-year-old daughter, whose silent tears on election night in 2016 had marked the beginning of this national nightmare for me. She had insisted we drive from Charlotte to D.C. this year so that we could, quote, protest in front of the president's house. We heard all of the inspiring speakers. We relished the creativity of the posters and slogans. But I guess not the hats because they got rid of those. Being among so many like minded people was comforting. I heard one woman say, I love being here today. It makes me feel less alone. I wanted to be with people who shared my anger because I have been so angry about Donald Trump this past year, I have been angry at my country for electing this man, angry at my neighbors who support him, angry at the wealthy who sacrificed our country and its goodness for tax breaks, angry at the coal miners who believed his promises. All right, end quote. I got, I got to take, I got to take a step back from this for a second here. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this woman's angry. I'm, I'm just going to put that out. I, I, I'm, I'm sensing some anger from her think it's maybe clouding her judgment a little bit. I also think she may have internalized national politics a little too much. You know, it's it's really not all about you. It's okay. You don't have to cry at night. I also would note that okay, her daughter's 16 so at least she can have some idea of what's going on. She didn't pull the the favorite progressive trick of the first 6 months of 2017 or so which was my four-year-old came up to me and said, "What are we going to do about the change in marginal progressive tax rates for millionaires and billionaires?" It's like, I don't think your four-year-old asks you that question, actually. And I'm talking about journalists, by the way, like people that have careers in in the media and in and in writing and supposedly spreading truth. They're like, my eight-year-old came up to me and said, "I don't understand how the president can withhold further action on deferred action for childhood arrivals." It's like, no. Your six-year-old son did not ask that question, but it's cute that you like to use that as a trope to show how outraged you are. But anyway, 16, fine. 16, you're allowed to be upset about politics. Crying about politics at 16 strikes me as a little bit bit too much. But then again, some 16-year-old girls cry when the mall closes too early or 16-year-old guys cry when they lose a video game, right? So, okay. So people cry. Fine. Fair enough. Whatever. You can tell, though, she's a little angry. You can tell she's a little upset. And this is part of the mentality that we see time and again when it comes to the anti-Trumpers. Um, that they do take this so very, very personally. People ask me all the time, you know, how do you live in New York City and you're around these people? And I, just, I just live my life, you know? Uh, it's, you know when in the movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Jonah, uh, Jonah Hill, who has a CD that he's made, goes up to Russell Brand, who's supposed to be a rock star, and he's like, "Hey, I'm just wondering if you got a chance to listen to my CD." And Russell Brand's like, "No, I just went on living my life." And that's actually my approach to living around a whole bunch of progressives in in New York City when I'm not actually working, right? When I'm not writing or on radio or TV or something, I just I don't engage, right? Do I uh, in my in my pre in my pre uh, Black Rifle Coffee days, for example, would I go to the anarchist coffee shop that's right near me and 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 hear their they're terrible music, and and I'm sure try to avoid looking at all the, all the posters about the next Women's March. Yeah, you know, before I knew about better options, sure. I just try to ignore this stuff. But the anti-Trumpers can't ignore. They can't separate it out. It's all so intertwined in their identity and in their sense of self. And that's also why they are impervious to new information, new facts, good faith arguments. Because to change their mind about much of the reasons or many of the reasons they have for hating Trump is to change their mind about how righteous and brilliant and wonderful they are. It's not about, hey, this is about this is public policy, which is complicated. And here's a different approach to this. And maybe you should think about it. It's I'm a good person. I voted for Hillary. You guys are so mean. You voted for Trump. So she went to the women's march. Fine. What are they marching about? Not really clear to me. Although not for unborn babies, but that's a, another discussion for another time. Uh, th- anyway, she went back. She, my fury, I, I, we got to keep going here. So, and she's mad at coal miners, I would note. I'm guessing of whom she has met zero. But she's mad at coal miners for believing Trump. She's mad at everybody. I mean, you could really say this is the quintessential. Remember how Pajama Boy was like the ultimate Obama voter? This woman in this article comes across as the quintessential Hillary voter. Just so angry that Hillary didn't shatter that glass ceiling. I will read to you some more of her piece here. My fury has been bottomless. (laughs) I drink my I drink my morning coffee from a cup that says I hate to wake up when Donald Trump is president. I swear I'm not making this up, guys. The constancy of my outrage has been exhausting, yet I have not found a way to quell it. Nearly each day has brought a new reason to stoke the fire. But a day with my daughter communing with the angry and the aggrieved seemed a good way to try. Oh man, I, I'm. Uh, <laughs> she actually drinks coffee out of a cup every day that says "I hate waking up with Donald Trump as president." <laughs> First of all, where did she? Where did she even get that? I'm assuming she went online for like "I hate Trump" merch and found this. But you know, talk about a self reinforcing message. Like you know, tone it down a little bit. Maybe get like a you know a a, a little image of a puppy or something for your coffee mug you know maybe just take a step back lady anyway so then she goes on to and this is what this is what we're going to get into in a second then she goes on to tell about the rest of her day and the unexpected happened after protesting and exuding and really reveling in wallowing in her hatred and fury against trump and all the trump voters and all the Oh, they're just those in the like, like Peter, uh, like Peter Struck from the FBI. You know those, those hillbillies, right? Ugh, oh, she's so disgusted by them. But then, fate intervenes, and the woman who's writing about how she's just so angry, she can't find enough outlets for her anti-Trump anger. By the way, it doesn't work in politics, from what I understand. Like this is, uh, she comes across, an actual Trump voter. She, and she has no choice. She has no choice but to to stand there and she doesn't want to make any sudden movements. She doesn't want to give the Trump voter an excuse to charge, you know? You don't want to make too much eye contact either with the Trump voter because the Trump voter might might take that as a as a signal for you vying for dominance, you know? But you don't want to run away from the Trump voter because then the Trump voter may think you're prey. So this pro Hillary anti Trump voter had to face her greatest fear. She had to actually have a conversation with a Trump voter. I will tell you about it right after this break. Welcome back. When I last left you, we had a Prius-driving, Women's March-attending, angry Hillary voter who is not just never, ever Trump. She is, I hate Trump so much. And she was squaring off against that most dangerous most dangerous of opponents an everyday trump voter, terrifying i know let me read to you from her account she survived it so we can all be thankful for that the trump voter and her did not this did not end with with tragedy here is what happened quote before i could do anything but park my gray prius of course it's a gray prius a man rushed over i heard you coming down that road he said before I could say much, he started surveying the situation. You see, she had car trouble. Oh, she had car trouble. She thought she had blown out a tire, and she had to pull off at the nearest exit. There was a popping sound followed by a screeching, and she was worried she might be driving on metal. Very dangerous. So she stuck there, and in this moment of need, in this terrifying ordeal, who comes along but somebody that she clearly identifies As a Trump voter, so he says, I heard you coming down that road. And she said that he didn't so much offer to help as get right to work. Quote It turned out that I hadn't blown a tire. A huge piece of plastic under the front bumper had come loose, causing the screeching as it scraped along the road. After determining that he couldn't cut the plastic off, he ran over to his car to grab some zip ties so he could secure the piece back in place. He did all of this so quickly that I didn't have time to grab the prominent resist, of course, sticker on the side of my Prius, (laughs) which suddenly felt needlessly alienating. You don't say as this man lay on the ground under my car with his miracle zip ties. I asked if he thought they would hold for four more hours of driving. Just ask any redneck like me what you can do with zip ties. Well, zip ties and duct tape. You can solve almost any problem. You'll get home safe. Turned to his teenage son standing nearby. You can say that again, his son agreed. The whole interaction lasted ten minutes tops. Catherine and I, that's the name of her daughter, made it home safely. Whew, she survived. She survived the Trump voter. He didn't, he didn't uh, take her hostage. He didn't kidnap her. He just was really nice and fixed her car right away. And, yeah, she was 90 minutes south of D.C. That's way outside of Beltway territory, folks. That's like the wilderness. I mean, you're practically in Mordor when you go 90 minutes south of D.C. because that's actually real Virginia. It's not the northern Virginia part that has now been taken into D.C. and the Metroplex, right? 90 minutes is like, I mean, you're going to hit Charlottesville before long. It's Virginia, Virginia. And sure enough. She, uh, she was approached by a, a Trump voter in her gray Prius because, of course, that's what she drives. And he just ran over there, helped her out, didn't... didn't You know, it's weird. the And she just... I, I will also note with all this, she just identifies him as a Trump voter. I am assuming that this gentleman was... I don't know. Did he have, like, a mullet uh, trucker hat and a MAGA T-shirt on? I mean, what? I, she gives no... No explanation of this. From what I, I'm trying to think. How does she even know that he's? A, <laughs> maybe she's just like, oh my gosh. Strikes me as a Trump. He was wearing a Carhartt jacket. Strikes me as a Trump voter. Good gosh. Um, he looked like his hands had done heavy labor recently. He must be a Trump voter. It's like I, I'm not. I mean, I'm giving you more detail than she did. I don't know how she knew. I mean, she's driving a gray Prius. She has a Resist bumper sticker on. I can tell you, there's a lot of stuff. There is a preponderance of cats at home, most likely. Yes, that's right. Not like one or two. That's cool. Cats are fine. Like fifteen. Anyway, uh she she doesn't she says this guy's a Trump voter. How she knows, I don't know. Um maybe because he said like ma'am and was polite and friendly and helpful to her and wasn't like, oh my gosh, we have to call triple A right away. <laughs> like he's like, I got some zip ties, let's fix it. So uh, here's what she she goes on though, and I will say the story has a happy ending, folks. I like to tell you stories with happy endings when I can. The story goes on like this. This is our author here, Ruth. She is a oh I, she's a communications consultant. Hmm, Interesting. So it's like communications consultant, social media manager. These you know you, you tend to have a lot of a lot of Bernie Bros and Bernie si- uh, sisters in in that in those categories. But here's what she says in her piece. Our encounter changed the day for me. When I tried to dive back into my liberal podcast, my mind kept being pulled back to the gas station. I couldn't stop thinking about the man who called himself a redneck. Oh, She couldn't stop thinking about that. I mean, look, you know, redneck, you know, some this guy's got some manly appeal. Probably I'm just putting that out there who came to our rescue. I sized him up as a Trump voter, again, based on the fact that he's good with his hands and fixed a car. But there you go, Trump voters. You should feel good about that one just as he likely drew inferences from my Prius and Resist sticker. You know what's so funny? I'm obviously not quoting her anymore. I guarantee this guy wasn't like, oh, wow, there's a Hillary voter. I'm going to go help her with my zip ties. He was just like, woman needs help with car, we'll help her because, right? But she's like, he must have sized me up. He probably knew right away I just come from the Hillary march or whatever they're calling it. All right, back to what she says. For a moment, we were just two people. And the exchange was kindness, his, and gratitude, mine. As I drove home, I felt the full extent to which Trump has actually diminished my desire to be kind. He is keeping me so outraged that I hold ill will towards others on a daily basis. Trump is not just ruining our nation, he is ruining me. By the end of the drive, I felt... Heartbroken. All right. So go <laughs> with there for a second. Let's you see, when I said it's a happy ending, I mean it's like there's a silver lining. I'm not sure we could say it's a totally happy ending. Because here's what's going on. This woman has the self awareness to realize that one, she's super judgy. If Miss Molly was here, she'd be like, Oh, that's very judgy to say that this guy's a Trump voter with no I mean, it's not like he had a I don't I didn't hear anything about a Trump bumper sticker on his car or something. He was driving a pickup truck and he had workman's boots on. It was terrifying. (laughs) Like, what's the problem? I I guess she figured she was in rural Virginia and there's a decent chance that sure enough, you know, this guy anyway. Uh, But instead of taking the lesson she should take from this is maybe I need to rethink how much I internalize politics and how much I have been fed this steady diet of of real hatred for trump as though he's the antichrist he's he's basic he's like basically hitler i mean all that stuff instead of thinking again about all of that she's actually like you know what i feel bad that i'm mean and and nasty to some people at least in my in my head that's my first inclination because of trump therefore you'll see where i'm going here her meanness is not a function of the progressive brainwashing that she's had from the media and everything else. Her meanness is Trump's fault. And and I kind of wish I could sit down with Miss Miss Mayer or Meyer Mayer, however you say it. I wish I could sit down with Ruth. Can I call you Ruth? No, you may not, sir. Uh, and just say to her, you know, maybe a better approach to this would be to just treat everybody like you would want to be treated, which is what they tell us all starting and around kindergarten, I think. And just be cool and, like, have your beliefs and politics. Look, you want to go march in the Women's March? That's great. Do your thing. But don't come to all kinds of judgments about somebody. I mean, you don't have a judging. I mean, she's, you know, just because he calls himself a redneck. I'm sure there are some rednecks that voted for Hillary. You know, there are, like, probably four or five somewhere in the country. But, no, seriously, like, like, just because he calls himself a redneck doesn't mean that She knows all that much about him. She doesn't, uh, you know, she doesn't know him. She doesn't understand what he what he's been through and what he's dealt with. And so just be a nice person instead and stop thinking that politics is the defining characteristic of who you are day in and day out. That should be. I mean, then we'd get to a happy ending. Right. Then we would be in a better position here. Um, She says at the end, it felt like a sign that maybe if we treat one another with kindness and gratitude uh, putting our most loving selves forward, this moment can transform into something more bearable. But how do we hold on to the fire fueling our resistance to the cruelty Trump unleashes but also embrace the world with love? I wish I knew. She See, she's getting close to the answer, but I'm going to have to give her a red X on the paper here because she's not getting the answer right. Yeah, don't be such a judgmental weirdo about people because you differ with them politically. Don't think that your own politics define who you are, but also... Don't get so wrapped up in the national political situation that it's affecting your day to day life. Lady, if you're drinking from an I hate Trump mug every day, you got a problem. It's time to admit you have a problem. So I, I hope she comes to that at some point. But she survived her encounter with the redneck. Self-described. She She's OK. She's OK, everybody. She might have learned something. And that guy sounds awesome, by the way. I'd like to have some gluten free tequila with him at some point. Anyway, we're rolling into a quick break. We'll be back with uh, Selena Zito telling us about Rust Belt Democrats. Perfect transition here. Stay with me. Well, you know, there's a lot of political stories going on right now, and some of them aren't getting nearly enough attention because of all the Russia memo collusion Mueller nonsense. But we've got a national political reporter with us now to bring us up to speed on the mess in Pennsylvania. Our friend Selena Zito is with us now. She's written in the Washington, Washington Examiner on this, and she wants to tell us about what's going on. Selena, great to have you back.
1: Always great to be on the show. Thank
3: you so much. So, tell me what's going on in in Pennsylvania with and there's redistricting, and the Democrats are having a big rough time. What's happening?
1: So we got a couple of things going on in Pennsylvania. Let's start with the with the uh, congressional map. Uh, two or yeah, two and oh, about ten days ago, as the state supreme court. Uh, ruled that the current congressional map as drawn was illegal, unconstitution- un- unconstitutional under the state, and it had to be thrown out, redrawn by the state legislature, which is majority Republican, and then signed by the Democratic governor and put in place in 10 days, which is, Crazy, right? Like, can you just imagine, imagine redrawing eighteen congressional districts in ten days, and then um, re- changing them, and then people have to have their petitions in so they can run, and people will then have to figure out who, where they live, because it's going to change. So the Republicans balked at it, and they took it back to the state supreme court and asked them to put a stay on their own ruling which of course they were never going to do so then they took it to the u.s supreme court and uh sam alito said he's not going to touch this so now we're back to all of the 18 congressional districts having to be redrawn of those 18 seats 13 of them are held by republicans five by democrats of those 13 Republicans, five have decided not to run, whether there are um, like a lot of them like Schuster, you know, his chairmanship at transportation expires. And these guys don't like to go from being in leadership to one of 435 members. So a lot of them are retiring. And um, so that's in a nutshell where this is
3: so and and they lost uh their the leadership has stepped down the democrat party in pennsylvania
1: yes oh yes and there's also the state democratic chairman marcel Grohn, who is uh, was a very respected state party chair leader he was one of the first sort of democrats to make it allowable for more moderate and centrist Democrats to, you know, get on the slate and run, something that hasn't been able to happen for Democrats in this state since 2008. So it opened up the possibility that some Democrats could win in some state legislative seats or congressional seats and, you know, maybe have an impact in where the majority is in, in either of those bodies. Uh, he made some controversial mistake or um, uh, controversial opinions last week. I'm not sure where they were because it was with an, an interview with the Philadelphia Inquirer. And so the, the, the uh, Democratic governor, Tom Wolf, asked him to leave. And now they are without a state party chairman until June.
3: We're speaking to Selena Zito. She is a political analyst and a columnist for the Washington Examiner National political reporter. Uh, Selena, tell me about your piece, Rise of the Rust Belt Democrats.
1: Oh, So that was my interview with uh, Congressman Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan, if you remember, in 2016, right after uh, the Democrats lost not only the presidency, but lost more seats in the House, and their minority became even smaller, uh, challenged Nancy Pelosi to... Uh, for her minority leader seat. Now, Ryan has, for the most part, been a backbencher uh, and and so uh, his quest was chaotic at best. He didn't win but he did give her a run for the money and what he did do was give a more forceful voice for moderate Democrats that has been allowed again since about 2008-2009. He has now been Asked to go to New Hampshire and Iowa more than any other Democrat considering running for Democrat, uh, for president in 2020. So it's interesting to see a more moderate uh, politician getting a voice in in a sort of upper echelon of the Democratic grassroots activism than you have seen uh, since about. Oh, so, my goodness, since the time Al Gore ran in 2000.
3: Selena, is that part of the Democrat strategy to, to try to win, to get some pickups in the midterms? They're going to return to the old uh, blue dog Democrat gun toten Democrat playbook.
1: <laughs> well, see, everybody talks about that. But honest to goodness, it there's sort of no self-awareness among the Democrats. As I watched Nancy Pelosi today give a six hour She called it a filibuster. The House doesn't do a filibuster, but her six hour speech on the House floor. And I said and I thought, you know, this does not help swing state Democrat candidates.
3: Yeah. Even if they wanted to return to that old playbook, it seems to me like being a gun toting Bible loving Southern Democrat or, you know, whatever, Rust Belt Democrat. Uh, that to me is, is tough to do when you're also advocating for illegal alien rights all the time and transgender bathroom issues. So I think that they're going to have a tough, I think the national Democrat party is going to have a tough sell with that, but we'll see what happens. Selena, where should people well, go for, where's your website? Oh, we got to go in a second. Oh,
1: Selena Zito, S-A-L-E-N-A-Z-I-T-O. It has everything that I write for the Examiner and the New York Post.
3: Fantastic. Check it out at SelenaZito.com. Selena, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Have a great one. Thanks, you too. All right, team, we're going to do some uh, roll call on the flip side of this break. We get to hear from all of you. We'll be right back. Senator John Heilman here. Um,
4: the president apparently uh, would like to throw himself a parade, a military parade, um, <clears throat> troops and tanks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and there's some planning now underway, or at least dates are being considered. What say you? I say that it's a fantastic waste of money to amuse the president.
5: I don't think a a show of military might. It reminds you of uh, of what the Soviets uh, do and uh, what the Chinese do. Uh, And we need to honor our men and women in uniform. uh, But I think we ought to do so in a way that does not necessarily uh, appear uh, bellicose or threatening to the rest of the world. Uh, We want to be peacemakers, not war makers. Uh, It also uh, can be perceived as uh, uh, jingoist in some respects. Uh, saber-rattling in some respects.
3: There you have a bunch of Democrats who, no surprise, all of a sudden are concerned about government spending. Oh, my gosh, a parade. Uh, And this is one of the first times I think I've ever heard Democrats in elected office argue against any any parade that I'm familiar with. I mean, we got got parades going on for everything these days, folks. I mean, I live in New York City, and let me tell you, it's, you know, the this week it's the uh, Arm, you know, not really, but you know, it's the Armenian parade. And next week it's the Bulgarian parade. And next week it's the Bolivian parade. And next week it's you know the Southern County Kerry of Ireland parade. I mean, it's like rah, it's just parade after parade. There's <laughs> parades all the time. All right, everyone's having parades. I will tell you as a general rule, I'm kind of anti-parade. This will not surprise any of you. I think that parades are overrated. Now, I'm not anti them as in I. Begrudge anyone who likes them or thinks that they should all end or something. I just find the parades are. It's like, oh yeah, oh that's loud. The floats here. Oh my god. Oh okay. Got to wait a few more minutes. It's gonna be another. It's gonna be a, a you know another bunch of more. I I can hear some drums. Let's give it a few minutes. You know they're gonna they're walking they're coming. I mean it's just not the most exciting spectator spectator sport I've ever. Yeah I know I'm a hater right now. I, I I'm, oh yeah you agree oh you're with me. Oh, all right producer Mike is giving me the. The thumbs down on parades, the thumbs up on parades or not? You know, look, sports teams have parades. Although your Eagles fans had their own parade, my friend, I saw that. Uh, but yeah, you know, look, I'm, I'm not a parade i but you want to have a parade, have a parade. Here's the thing, though. The one time when I'm like, you know what, I like, I I think that this is important, and y- you need to show up is like Veterans Day, you know, Veterans Day parade, Memorial Day parade. Those are parades that matter, right? So anything that involves respect for the armed forces and the military, I think, goes into a a different category of parade. And this notion that Democrats have that it's so crazy that we would take some time to celebrate. You'll notice none of these people like what's the women's march about? What the heck are they complaining about? Right. I mean. And by the way, you want to you want to get into the costs of some of these things at the Women's March in terms of, oh, that's right, city services, overtime, cleanup. The cleanup for some of the parades in New York City, it looks like a hurricane slash tornado slash, you know, bombing raid went through downtown Manhattan. I mean, it's crazy what happens after these parades. So it is very expensive uh, in a city budgetary sense I mean in the national budget having a parade I think is pretty minor but the point is there's costs associated with all this stuff but we're gonna get we're gonna get cheap all of a sudden we're going to want to pen uh pinch pennies pinch pennies uh we're gonna want to pinch pennies when it comes to honoring the military well, let's just take a little step back here for a second uh and, and and we're gonna start saying it's jingoistic you know we're not North Korea uh dick Durbin we're not saying that yeah you know, hey look at these big missiles we're gonna fire them at you I mean that's not the point It's just for us to celebrate our own military. And and I would note we've got a few million active duty and recently uh, recently separated from the service veterans who fought wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, deployed all over the world. They defeated the Taliban. They defeated. Saddam Hussein ousted him from power, defeated the al-Qaeda in Iraq insurgency, handed Iraq back over to the Iraqis. And I mean, I'm just going off the top of my head, by the way. I'm not trying to forget or leave out anything. But has they've done a tremendous amount of good work for the world. And we all owe them, as the American people, a debt of gratitude that we'll never be able to pay. And so if we have a parade, why, why is that? This reminds me of when Democrats right after 9-11 were kind of like, I don't know about flags, you know, all the flag waving. Maybe everyone was like, I'm sorry, what's that? You got a problem with the American flag now, elected officials and media pundits, because that's weird. Now, all of a sudden, because Trump is for a military parade, they're against it. So maybe I should give them the benefit of the doubt and assume here that what's really at work is just their Trump derangement syndrome and that they don't have a problem with a parade for the military as a concept. They're just pretending to because they hate Trump so much. I just hate Trump. They just get so upset about all of this. But I recall, you know, after World War II, for example, some really timeless and inspiring photos of our our boys coming back from overseas, so to speak, our men and women in uniform coming back to the States, ticker tape parade, the whole thing what's what's wrong with that? I would need some of these Democrats to explain. Oh, yeah, they're worried about the budget. Right. Sure. That's what it's about. I mean, that's the biggest uh, crock of nonsense. But they're opposed to the uh, optics of this. They think that the perception of a parade would somehow what antagonize North Korea. Do we care about antagonizing North Korea? I think I think a little more antagonism against North Korea is probably a good thing. But that's you know the assumption. And by the way, anyone who says that we should uh, that we are not, or, or, or we are uh, overestimating the furor and opposition to this, doesn't pay attention to what's going on in the world around them. You've got a guy named Arn Menconi, who is a former, uh, a, a former U.S. Senate candidate. I have a feeling he probably got a grand total of, uh, you know, five votes. But he says we quote, We already have thirteen people who have signed up to lay down in front of the tanks if Trump brings out a military parade. This is not a military authoritarian state. We uh, will you join us? Hashtag Trump Parade. These people think that this is like Tiananmen Square. You know, that they're standing up to Trump the dictator. It's like, no, this would be US military, you know. It would be a parade where we're celebrating the military. And thank you very much. This should be a big thank you for your service day, right? So what's, what's the issue? Isn't it so interesting? Democrats, you know, I know they all say things like, oh, we support the troops. You know, that's bipartisan. Meh. A lot of Democrats, they got some questions about the troops, be honest with you. A lot of Democrats in places they don't talk about at parties, they, uh, they wonder, you know, why didn't they have the— uh, I'm talking about Democrat elected politicians now. Uh, but they wonder, you know, they didn't have the the fortitude to do it. And look, I know there are other Democrats who are in Congress who served honorably and are great and all that, too. But if you're looking for disdain for the military in political circles, even it might be slightly uh, closeted disdain. But if you're looking for it, it's always among Democrats. You, you never find Republicans that are like, yeah, military, I'm kind of iffy on it. There are some Democrats that are like, man, I'm a little iffy on the whole U.S. military thing. It's, a, it's just the way it is. I mean, it's the way that their ideology lines up on a whole bunch of things, um, not, not the least of which is that we are the cause of problems in the world, right? That's a classic leftist Democrat talking point that we cause, that our military causes problems all over the world. And you, you, the, the Noam Chomsky view, if you will, on the military, that's a Democrat issue. That's not a Republican one. So I, like, I, I don't like parades, but I'd be down for a parade for our military, and I think that Trump's onto onto something here. If nothing else, once again, he manages to expose that Democrats just always seem to have a little bit of a, well, Trump derangement syndrome clouds their judgment on everything. But also when it comes to military, it's like, hmm, why aren't you guys uh, on board for this a little bit sooner? A little strange, isn't it? I want to tell you about a Trump voter and a March for Women person that... They had quite. They had quite a little, a little sit down. I'm gonna tell. Not sit down, but a, an interaction. This is gonna come up. You've got to hear this. It is illuminating about the way that coastal blue Democrat voters view Trump, Trumpism, and people who vote for either of those things. Um, I, I think we're gonna have some fun with it. So, uh, what happens when a, when somebody from the Women's March? is having car trouble and is in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the wilds of Virginia, confronted with that always, uh, always terrifying situation of a Trump voter who comes to her aid on the side of the highway. Oh, we will discuss that and uh, much more, my friends, coming up in the next hour. Stay with me.